I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. This week's episode is the last of the first series. The original plan was to take a break of a few weeks and then come back with season two in late May. However, thanks to lockdown, we're going to launch season two next week. Yep, lots of podcasts are releasing Patreon-only episodes to help ease the boredom during lockdown. We don't have any Patreon episodes to release, so I figured we could do our little bit just by skipping our planned break. Aren't we good? We are, aren't we? So good. Um, We've got guests in the studio today. By studio, I mean living room, and by guests, I mean stepdaughter and stepson next door. (laughs) Um, So if you hear anything in the background, um, you'll probably hear stepson playing on the Xbox. Yes. Apologies for that. We've told them to shut up, but he's a teenager, doesn't listen. Before we launch into this week's podcast, we're pleased to promote the Broken Utopia podcast from Kira. It launches this coming Friday, and if Kira's name or voice rings a bell, it's because she hosts the brilliant Murder and More podcast, another UK-based true crime podcast. Here we go. There are so many quotes about life. Aristotle once said that it is in our darkest moments that we must focus to see the light. Nelson Mandela is quoted as saying that the greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. American lecturer Ralph Waldo Emerson said that life is a succession of lessons which must be lived to be understood. This is Broken Utopia a podcast where I, your solo host Kira, turn my blog posts about life, loss, love and grief into a podcast. Join me every Friday beginning the 1st of May. Until then, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Broken Utopia Pod. Thanks, Kira. We've subscribed. We're looking forward to seeing the first episode next week. Also, a quick thank you to everyone who has been liking and sharing our stuff on social media, especially Jay Barnes and Liam Ford, whose names have cropped up a few times. Thank you, guys. Yep, thank you. Once again, this is being recorded in the middle of lockdown, coronavirus week, whatever it is. 96, I think. Oh, feels like it. <laughs> and what have we done this week? Well, I've been working, yep. working from home all week. Uh, children have been doing their schoolwork. They have, yeah, because we're back from Easter break now. We are. I'm on furlough, so I've been writing episodes of Sublime True Crime, and I've managed to write three quarters of one. Excellent, very productive. (laughs) Well done, me. Really struggled. That was coming in a few weeks. So you've done less than you would have done if you're actually (laughs) holding down a full-time job. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because I average one a week. Yes. Um, And last night, we got, well, this morning, we woke up horrendously hungover. I didn't think we drank that much last night. I didn't feel that drunk at the time. However, now that I look back on what we actually drank last night, I can see why. Okay, I felt fair so hideous. You know, we I'm had, still in the self-denial stage. No, we had we had two lots of cocktails, two like cocktail shakers full we of did. cocktails, which are quite strong. Mm-hmm. And then I pretty much drank a bottle of prosecco on my own. You did because I don't drink wine. Yeah. And I was chucking down the JD and Coke. You had a so lot maybe of JD and Coke. Yeah. So and we mixed. Obviously, I'm not supposed to mix. Oh, yeah. Your drinks are you? Oh yeah. Yeah, so both of us were not feeling too clever this morning. No. I got up, we went out, didn't we? We got showered and dressed and had breakfast, took some painkillers, and then went to the shop, bought my parents' paper. Yep. 
um, and then dropped it off at their house, chatted them for sort of 10 minutes from the end of the driveway, and then came home and went back to bed. <laughs> went back to bed and fell asleep for several hours. It was grand. Yeah. So I feel like I've wasted a beautiful sunny day. Yes. Yeah, which is why I'm now drinking Vimto. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm drinking Coca-Cola. No, you're not. You're on Hair of the Dog, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Let me finish with a double JT. There you go. <laughs> this is not cocaine. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. It's not like last week. It's not JD and Coke. No, could be worse. <laughs> if, if that makes no sense to you, you need to listen to last week's episode. Yeah, realise what JD and Coke really was. Yes. Moving on to this week. This week we are covering off the case of the murder of Derek and Eileen Severs. Roger Severs was an only child, and without wanting the stereotype, he says as an only child himself, he was spoiled by his parents always getting what he wanted. Roger's dad, Derek, worked for the chemical company ICI as an executive. And despite being well known for being hard-headed in business, Derek was completely the opposite with his son. His role at ICI was well paid, and it meant that he and his wife, Eileen, could spoil their only child as they saw fit. On the rare occasions that Roger wasn't given exactly what he wanted, he had perfected manipulation, from begging and pleading to get his own way through to throwing massive tantrums full of anger and rage. His parents often acquiesced, hoping that their son would grow out of his selfish ways. They sent him to the best private schools, which is never a cheap option, but to little avail. His teachers would report back that he was a lazy pupil, lacking both commitment and effort. In time, he took and failed his exams. Never once to be held back by his own failures, Roger was convinced that self-employment was the way he would make his fortune. With each business launch came a request for startup funds, a request that Derek was always happy to comply with. After all, he loved his son, he wanted him to succeed. But each business failed, one after the other. It seemed that Roger's laziness wasn't left behind with his education. But with Daddy's money always a phone call away, there was nothing to encourage him to work harder. A new business could always be set up. Not that he'd always looked to be self-employed, There were a few attempts at being a salesman and some casual work pulling pints behind a bar. His want of a quick buck was never far away though, and twice he got convicted of fraud offences in the 1980s. Where Roger lacked effort in his work life, he was exactly the opposite when it came to chasing women. He had a succession of girlfriends who he relied on for a place to live and money to spend, convincing each one in turn of his big plans for the future. However, Severs was a heavy drinker, and whiskey in particular made him violent. Many of his relationships finished after he hit the women he was with. Whenever he was thrown out as a relationship ended, he would end up back home with mum and dad. In 1990, he answered an advert in a Lonely Hearts column. Blimey, do you remember those Lonely Heart columns? Do you remember those? Long, long time for Plenty of Fish. I used to love reading them. I never actually put one or responded to one, but I used to really enjoy reading them. They were always full of acronyms that I couldn't understand, like GSOH, Good Sense of Humour, which was one that I did know. so you did actually understand Well, I knew that one. (laughs) Obviously, I can uh, identify with that. Own home and car. (laughs) Didn't have that one. (laughs) H-O-T, has own teeth. (laughs) Jane Galliford was a mum of three who ran her own hotel. She was contacted by Roger via the ad and agreed to dinner with him. At the restaurant, she was impressed as Roger told her all about himself, in particular how he was currently enjoying some well-earned time off from his job as a gynaecologist. <gasps> the lying little bugger. Hmm. It took months for Jane to realise the truth, but by then she was head over heels in love. 
and several months pregnant. Oh, no. It made sense for Jane to invite Roger to live with her at the hotel, which he readily agreed to, <laughs> as he would Sherlock. do. Yeah. Not that it changed him. His lazy attitude continued, and even the arrival of their son, Tom, didn't make him improve. Within time, Roger became violent towards the mother of his child. Despite forgiving him time and time again, Jane could only take so much, and in the spring of 1993, she kicked him out. This was a big enough wake-up call for Roger and gave him the kick up the backside he needed to make amends and get his life back on track as an independent man that didn't need to loaf off of other people. Obviously not. <clears throat> Despite not having seen his parents for two years... And consider that he had a three-year-old son, so I'm making the assumption that his parents hadn't seen their grandson in that time, which is heartbreaking. Despite not having seen his parents for two years, Roger got in contact with the pair who had recently retired and he soon moved back into his old bedroom at their bungalow in Hambleton. Hmm, something's never changed. No. Hambleton is a village in Rutland, England. Forming part of Leicestershire, it's located about two miles, three kilometres, east of Oakham, and in 2011 had a population of just 203. 203? That's tiny. That is a village. That really That's is, a isn't it? That's village, a blink that. and you miss it as you drive through it. I read a thing that was thinking about how a small town or a town is classed as, I think it was, um, excellent. 2,000 up to about 20,000. Right. like a small town. So village, obviously, it's very tiny. That's, that's a big family, some places that I, I know. <laughs> 203. By November that year, though, tensions had risen at the servants' home. Roger was still hoping to worm his way back into Jane's affections and thought he had the perfect opportunity to do so when a pub came up for sale nearby. In his mind, working together would be a surefire way to win Jane back. Is he insane? Working together is quite frequently a nightmare because then there's no escape from each other. It's nice to have like a, a bit of time away and then you come back together and you have stuff to talk about. Yeah. If you work together all day, it's a real strain. Yeah, I can do that. I know some couples who work together and mm. I think they're amazing. My parents did it for years. They, they worked together because they had their own business. Yeah. But I think it was quite difficult at times. Yeah, I can imagine. He approached his father, Derek, for the money to start things up. In his mind, this was a certainty to succeed. What with Jane's experience of working in the licensing trade added to his own business acumen. Who's <clears throat> what now? Yeah. <laughs> Derek, however, still bitter from the lack of contact with his son in the previous couple of years, put his foot down and kept it down for the first time ever. He refused to bankroll his son's latest venture. Good. Roger did not speak to his father for weeks as a result. I kind of feel like that wasn't much of a big loss for his father. Uh, considering they still live together, he was in the same house, mm. some going. Not only had his dad refused to back him, he had also cost him the chance of getting back together with Jane. Then, Roger found out that his dad had loaned a friend £10,000 to set up his own business. If that wasn't enough of a kick in the teeth for him, the family friend was buying a pub. Ouch. It all came to a head on Saturday the 13th of November, when Roger's mother, Eileen, told him in no uncertain terms that there would be no more handouts for him his days of scrounging from his parents, was over. To really ram home her point, she also angrily told her only son that he was going to be written out of their will. He wouldn't get a penny of their inheritance. Instead, it would all go to their only grandson, Roger's son, Tom. A boy who, ironically, received the same adulation from the elderly couple that Roger had previously enjoyed. Oh, I can imagine, though. You know, their only mm. grandchild. Yeah, I can imagine. Roger stormed out of the house and made his way to the neighbouring village, where he holed himself up in a pub. Drinking whiskey throughout the lunchtime session, his hatred of his parents consumed him. 
Finishing his lunchtime session, Severs returned home. His mother had been at a local charity bazaar, but was now home alone preparing dinner. Derek was in the local pub enjoying an afternoon drink. Roger wasted no time in picking up the morning's argument with his mother again. Unable to take any more, Eileen pushed past him and made her way upstairs to take a bath and escape the verbal abuse. It was to be the last thing she ever did, for as she ran the water, Roger crept up behind her holding a wooden steak mallet in his hand that he'd taken from the kitchen. Hitting her with a force that immediately dropped her to the floor, Roger finished his assault on his elderly mother after landing eight vicious blows to her skull. Bloody hell. Despite the horrific injuries, it still took Eileen 30 minutes to die. Did sense kick in for Roger at that stage? Did he experience remorse? Guilt? Of course not. A while later, the sound of gravel crunching underneath tyres alerted Roger to the fact that his father was home. According to some reports, Derek was two metres tall, so six feet six inches, and 125 kilograms, which is 19 and a half stone in weight. Also suffering from chronic arthritis, his build meant that getting out of his car was always a slow process. He was only partly out of the car when Roger sprang on him from beside the garage. Using the same weapon as before, his first blow to the temple knocked his dad unconscious. Nine more strikes to the head killed him off. Oh my God. It's vicious, isn't it? It really is. Roger had dealt with the problem that had been winding up, but in doing so, he opened a whole new can of worms for himself. Realising that he now had to cover up the murders, Roger headed inside, grabbed a notebook and started to list a number of things that he needed to do to ensure he got away with the murders. Oh, if only he'd have started his list down the pub, he could have made number one, don't murder mum and dad. He could have done. Unbelievable. Once completed, Roger worked his way through the list. First, he had to get rid of the bodies. Starting with Eileen, he wrapped her in a blanket and dragged her corpse through the house and dumped it in the boot of his dad's car. His dad proved harder work, given his size. Roger covered him in the blankets, tied them up with belts and string and dragged him to the car. Unable to lift the body in the boot, he instead managed to manhandle the corpse, which was already beginning to stiffen with rigor mortis, into the back seat. You. Taking the gamble that, with it being dark, he could act unseen, Severs drove five miles to a nearby woodland where he buried them both. Working through till dawn, he'd managed to bury both bodies under two and a half tonnes of soil before covering them with leaves and branches. He then spent the day, and the next couple of days, clearing the house. He wiped up bloodstains and got rid of the bathroom carpet and murder weapon. He even paid a local 13-year-old boy to clear the rear of his car. Oh, that's disgusting. Oh, imagine that job. I've seen 13-year-old boys clean. I wouldn't trust them to clean anything, would you? <laughs> There'd be limbs left there and they wouldn't notice. Yeah, I didn't see it. Just clean around them. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to move that severed arm, so I just... <laughs> I didn't see a severed arm. <laughs> Burning the carpet and taking the ashes to the dump, Roger felt he'd gotten away with it. He now just had to get others to believe that his parents had gone away. This was no easy task. Eileen Severs had been awarded an MBE a few years before due to the active part she had in the village raising money for charity. In fact, only the week before, Eileen had organised a raffle and was due to distribute the prizes that weekend. Roger took it upon himself to do this, telling some of the winners who asked where his parents were that they had decided on a spur-of-the-moment visit to friends down south. He told other winners of the raffle that he was simply delivering the prizes on behalf of his mother, 
who he said was sitting outside in the car waiting for him. Witnesses later told police that Roger was in the car alone. I mean, that's a bloody stupid lie, isn't it? Oh, she's in the car. Oh, let's wave at her. Where is she? Oh, she's hiding. And not only that, but to tell different people different stories when there's a village of 200 people. I get the thing, he's not very bright. No. He was a busy boy that weekend, wasn't he? He was. As well as staying up all hours to bury bodies, burn carpets, clean bloodstains, deliver prizes and pay teenagers to get rid of dead parents out the back of the car, Roger also found time to call Jane four times, asking her to meet and consider a fresh start. Jane would go on to tell police that he sounded upbeat and buoyant, telling her all about a new business venture which meant that his money troubles were over. Not only that, but he also mentioned that his parents had gone away. I didn't know that murdering your parents was classed as a business venture. (laughs) I think for most normal people it's not, is it? No. No. All of this had surprised Jane, especially the bit about his parents. Jane was close with the grandparents of her son and she knew that they rarely did things on the spur of the moment. She had also met Eileen for tea the week before and had planned to go shopping together the following day. Other villagers were also showing signs of concern. The bad blood between Derek and Eileen and their son was well known in the community. When Roger mentioned to a different set of friends that his parents had gone away to recuperate after his father had suffered a stroke, which is a different story that he had been telling the others, the village gossip grew louder. He's such a prick, isn't he? He's really not helping himself. He really is. The following day, Jane herself grew more worried. Eileen hadn't met up with her to go shopping as agreed. Speaking to Severs, He reassured her that his parents were fine and had simply gone away for a few days. He begged Jane to meet for dinner, and she agreed. When it came to settling the bill at the restaurant, she was amazed when Severs paid with cash from a thick wad of banknotes. Only recently he had been penniless. By Thursday that week, rumours about the Severs' sudden trip away had reached police, who decided to speak to Roger about his missing parents. Detectives asked to search the house, which Severs let them do without hesitation. They asked about the missing bathroom carpet, which Severs explained by saying that his mother had thrown it out as it was worn out. They then pressed him for where his parents were staying. Stumbling over his words, he said that they were visiting friends, but when asked for contact details, he admitted he didn't know the name or the number of the friends, much less an address. The officers left and reported their findings to the local police station. See, that is well suspicious, because if my parents were going away for a weekend, I would be able to tell you who they were going to see, or at least a rough idea of who they were going off to see. Yeah, yeah, you'd say, oh, they'd gone with Bob and Barbara, they're staying at theirs. Yeah, you would absolutely know roughly where they were going. And I didn't even live with my parents anymore, and I would have a vague idea of where they'd gone and who with. He's living in the same house as them. He doesn't have a clue, does he? Really doesn't. The local inspector sent officers to Peterborough and King's Cross stations, both of which are big interchanges, to see if they could get any confirmed sightings of the couple on their trip. After all, their cars have been left behind, so taking a train was the next best option. Unsurprisingly, nobody had seen the couple. The officers returned the next day with some follow-up questions. Severs was out when they returned, so the police decided to have a look around the outside of the property. It was then that they noticed small splashes of blood on the garage door and in amongst the gravel stones. The officers called Jane to try and trace where Severs was. As luck would have it, she knew exactly where he was, as he had picked up their son Tom and taken him to see the local cattle market. Racing to the market, the officers found his car. When he returned to the vehicle, he was arrested on suspicion of murdering his parents. Severs spent 48 hours in police custody and was interviewed 11 times in total. 
With each interview, he gave a slightly different version of events, which led detectives to believe that they had enough to charge him with the murder of his parents, even without their bodies. The evidence was beginning to mount up. As well as the flecks of blood that had been spotted in the driveway and on the garage door, police forensic teams also found more traces of blood both in the bathroom and in the car. See, teenagers never do any jobs properly, do they? <laughs> it's very harsh and you're getting glared at right now by the stepdaughter. <laughs> <laughs> Love you. <laughs> the remains of the bonfire also proved to have carpet fibres in the ash, revealing that Severs hadn't disposed of the ash as comprehensively as he may have hoped. Just one thing after another, isn't it, with him? It really is. One of the biggest clues that the detectives found, though, was his to-do list. No way! himself <laughs> with a list of tasks to clear up after himself. These started with wheelbarrow, clean, and included reminders to clean his mum and dad's car, deliver the raffle prizes, and go to the dump. Oh, my God! So it seems he stopped short of burying the bodies properly, apparently. Oh, what a numpty. Forensics revisited the server's home. Blood was found in the bathroom, which was spattered in such a way that it could have only been from the result of a violent attack. They determined that although a clumsy attempt to clean up the mess had been made, the job was far from being well done. They also found similar blood traces near the garage. Back in the house, a trail of yellow fibres were found in the hallway carpets. They were in a rolled appearance, akin to being caused by something heavy being dragged over the carpet. Following the trail and theorising that it led to a car outside, the team looked carefully over the car in the driveway. It was covered in mud inside and out, something that was completely at odds with Derek Severs, who had a fastidious nature and kept his car immaculately clean. The forensics team guessed that the car could have been used to dispose of the bodies and, given how filthy it was, probably somewhere off-road. I thought he'd had a teenager clean the car. There were two cars, so I assume he had a teenager cleaning one oh. and not the other one. And he didn't think to clean the other one? Obviously not. Used. Nope. Um, or he got the teenager to clean both and the clean teenager didn't clean it properly. It's true. And I'm kind of thinking that the trail of yellow fibres in the hallway carpets, did he never vacuum? <laughs> it does sound like it, doesn't it? <laughs> I'll just leave that. It's fine. <laughs> I won't clean up the carpet in the bathroom. I'll just dispose of it and burn it. Yeah. Yeah. Orlando Elmhurst. Actually, let me tell you about this. My first boss was called Orlando. So when I was 16 years old, I went to work for um, a locksmith in Paddington in London. The boss was called Orlando. My mum was very protective of me because obviously I'm an only child, as I said at the start. And one day I came home, pretty much like a two hour journey time. I came home and I was so despondent about the way it was going. I'd been there for about two months. And she phoned up my boss to speak to him. Oh. And she opened it with, uh, oh yeah, I'd like to speak to Orlando, please. Oh, Orlando speaking. And she went, oh, I'm Dan's mum. Um, she went, oh, Orlando, that's an unusual name. Well, we know where you were conceived, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right of your mum. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> oh, bless her. How sweet, though, that she phoned for you. Yeah, you know my mum, it wasn't sweet. Um, Orlando Elmhurst, the senior crime scene manager, came up with an idea. And he said, quote, I used to be an archaeologist and I was aware that mud isn't just mud. Its makeup could hold pointers to where it had come from, end quote. The decision was made to try and trace where the mud had come from. Samples of the mud were taken from both inside and outside of the car. A detailed examination showed the mud had been accumulated recently, proving that it had built up over a short period of time and off-road. See, as always, it baffles me how they discern me stuff like this. It's, I think it's absolutely amazing. Mm. Deeper analysis by soil specialists at Leicester University showed that the mud contained quartz, calcite, ironstone, chert, as well as coated roadstone. 
This led police to believe that it was an unmade-up road in the East Leicestershire region. Organic matter in the sample revealed more than 20 varieties of plant life, including grasses, oak, alder and hawthorn leaves, and moss. This mix is apparently a fairly common combination in a wood, but there was also some relatively unusual species, such as horse chestnut. Yep, today I learnt horse chestnut is considered an uncommon species. Yeah. I thought it was really common. I suppose when you think about trying to look for conkers when you were a child, there weren't that many conker trees around, were there? Yeah, maybe that's true, actually. Maybe we know where they are because we all look for conkers or something. Yes. Seen. Working on the theory that due to Derek's large body mass, it was likely he could have been carried, dragged or moved no more than 50 metres from a potential parking site, experts narrowed down the location of the mud to two areas of woodland, one on the Hamilton Peninsula and the other adjacent to it. What I like about this is the fact that they say the body couldn't have been moved more than 50 metres from a parking site because of the, the weight of it, which makes sense. But imagine how gutted you'd be if you'd moved it like 49 metres. <laughs> just think if I've just gone for, you know, 10 more metres, they'd yeah, have stopped looking. Yeah. Yes. You so see, you should have taken his wheelbarrow. They should have done. Yeah. We know he had one. Yeah. He had to wash it anyway. <laughs> A tiny piece of fishing line in the sample helped them conclude that the bodies were likely to be located close to the water's edge. Police officers were sent to search the likely locations. At one of them, Armley Wood, an officer came across some broken twigs and branches. Noticing that the soil nearby looked disturbed and was a different colour from the forest floor that surrounded it, the officer put his hand into the mound. And I've got to say, he's a braver person than I am. Yes. As he did, he felt something cold. Part of a dead body. Oh, oh that's made me feel really quite sick. The soil was excavated carefully and police found the two bodies of the severs. Eileen had been wrapped in a yellow blanket hence the yellow fibres, mm. and both had horrific head wounds. Later investigation showed that the earth piled on top of the bodies had come from the Sever's own garden. It included a potato, which an expert testified was from Mr Sever's vegetable patch. What? Why would you take soil from the I garden to the woods, which is, by definition, <laughs> full of bloody soil? Oh, my God. And two and a half tonnes they put, he put on them. I mean, it couldn't have been a one-trip thing, could it? No, it couldn't have done at all. And you're just basically saying, oh, here's some more evidence for you. Oh, here's ridiculous. a potato from my dad's vegetable pad. And you think you'd notice it was a different colour as well? Yes. Mm. Roger Severs had dragged the bodies from the car into the woods and dumped them in an existing hollow. After that, he had gone back home and filled bags with soil from the garden. Making several journeys, he piled this soil over two and a half tonnes worth on top of the bodies and then did his best to hide the grave with leaves and twigs from nearby. Leaves and twigs, that'll do it. Well done. Oh. The bodies of Derek and Eileen Severs were discovered on the 1st of December. Roger Severs went on trial at Nottingham Crown Court on 21st of November 1994, charged with the double murder of his parents the previous year. Although he pleaded guilty to manslaughter, he denied murder, stating that he only had hazy memories of the attacks and that he was mentally ill when the killings took place. This plea was rejected and on the 12th of December 1994, after just two hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of both murders and sentenced him to two terms of life imprisonment. And that is the case of the murder of Derek and Eileen Severs. What are your thoughts? What do you think the reason was for burying his parents at the woods and then driving to and from home to get soil to cover them up with, rather than using soil from the woods? 
My brain is baffled as to what it is. Yeah, I don't know. I can only assume that he didn't want to disturb the ground around. Maybe, but... maybe he felt it was too difficult and the soil in his parents' garden was already nicely broken up. So mm. it was easier for him. Maybe. Maybe he just wasn't thinking. It does seem a little bit dim. Mm. wasn't on his to-do list. <laughs> it wasn't on his to-do list <laughs> and therefore it didn't happen. And do you think that he could have made a go of the pub with Jane had he been able to persuade his parents to fund the purchase of the pub? Hmm. I'm going to say no. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think... There's, there's nothing to suggest that he had any business acumen at all, is there? No, not at all. And although he was saying that after you know, he'd been kicked out, I'm sure he was doing the whole I can change thing. I think he's proven over and over again that he can't change at all. His poor son. Yeah, he grew up well. You say he's poor son, but he's grown up not knowing an abusive father. That's true, but no, no grandparents. He obviously has quite a yeah, good relationship true. with the grandparents. Yeah. So it's a real shame. What do you think? Let us know. Let us know. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com or elaine at sublimetruecrime.com Or you can reach us via the Facebook page. Just search for Sublime True Crime. And if you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review. Preferably a five-star one, please, if you could do. <laughs> it helps us to reach more people. And if you can think of any cases that you would like us to cover, please let us know. Don't forget to check out Kira's new podcast. Yes. And until next time... Goodbye. Goodbye.